Welcome to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Today I'm starting a brand new segment called Deep Dive where I discuss a particular topic related to venture capital. What you should know about early stage venture capital is a topic that I'm going to be discussing today with Yuri Engstrom. Yuri is an early investor in Unity, Dapper Labs, Aura and many other successful companies. Together with his partner Katerina Fake, he runs YesVC, an early stage VC firm based in San Francisco. Before starting YesVC, he founded two companies, first of which he sold to Google and the second one to Groupon. He has created a great deck on this topic which you can find in the show notes. Now let's talk to him. Hey Yuri, thanks so much for joining me today on my podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, yesterday I saw a tweet from Jason. Jason but... Lemkin probably, founder of Saster. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. The founder of Saster. Yeah. He mentioned that a VC fund needs about 2 billion in exit for each 50 million they raise. And then he explains why the true average ownership of 10% fully diluted times 2 billion is 200 million. That's 4x gross 50 million or just about good enough today. So, raise a 300 million dollar fund, you need 12 billion dollars in exit or better. Could you explain? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's he's spot on. I mean, and it has a few implications for founders also who are raising from venture capital funds that we can talk about if you think about for instance we're just raising our second fund so it's a 50 million dollar fund right yeah so what do i do well i take out my phone and i send messages to my lps or people who i think will invest in my fund cuz i need to fundraise first right i'm a vc i invest in companies entrepreneurs need to raise money from VCs but VCs are also entrepreneurs in the sense that we need to raise money too it's the money we invest that comes from our investors the limited partners the LPs right and so what do the LPs want to hear and how do i pitch them as a gp as a as a VC general partner right well they want returns right they want that money to come back at least 3x which is sort of the minimum acceptable rate of return for a fund manager in in venture capital historically right um yeah that's over so, a period of 10 years right yeah yeah it's over 10 years so you're thinking 3x wow that sounds like a lot but then if you think about that over 10 years actually it's not that it's different not from investing in the stock market so yes. in order for me to keep my job i got to return that fund three times over in 10 years, right? Otherwise, I'm going to have a really hard time raising another fund. And yeah. so, now if I raise 50 million dollars, that means I have to return 150 million dollars, right? Yes. Pretty simple. Now, if we go back to thinking about, oh, if if I'm a founder, now you sort of think like, well, if I return 3x to Yuri, and his fund yes vc i'm good right cuz he needs a 3x return except that's not how it works of course right and that's what jason's point i think was that as a vc first of all let's look at where i spend that money right so let's assume that i'm a successful fundraiser which frankly many vcs are not it's really difficult to raise vc funds you have to do a lot of work you know i would say having raised both vc funds and been a founder raising money for my startups that it's actually harder to raise money as a vc than it is to raise money as a founder so just just saying it's a tough business okay yeah. but let's say i was successful here i've got my 50 million dollars raised now first of all it's good to understand that i'm not actually going to spend all that 50 million dollars investing into rahul's latest podcasting startup and your buddies, right? In fact, yeah. Only a fraction of that money is actually going to go into first checks into companies. So, roughly speaking, we'll take 20% right off the bat and just carve out that slice of pizza, which in a 50 million dollar fund would be roughly 10 million, and that's yeah. just going to be my fees, my expenses, I got to pay my staff, I have to pay rent for my office just like you do, blah blah blah, right? So, it's typically a 2% management fee which over 10 years turns into something close to roughly 20% of the fund. So, now I've got 40 million dollars left to actually invest. But even that pool of money doesn't all go into first checks into startups. Like in our case, we split it pretty much 50-50. 
into two pots. One of the pots is the follow-on tickets that we reserve later on when we need to defend our ownership in companies, right? And then yeah. now I've only got, if we divide that $40 million that's left after the fees to invest into two, that's $20 million and $20 million. $20 million I reserve. And then $20 million is actually the pile of cash that I'm going to invest into first tickets. Now, yeah. typical VC fund will be somewhere, I don't know, between maybe 20 and 40 companies in the portfolio because you're trying to diversify, right? You can't invest everything into just one or two companies. And so for the sake of argument, like in our fund one, I think we had 23 companies, which is a pretty concentrated early stage fund. Oftentimes you'll see 30, 40, even 50, 60 companies in a fund. But, you know, let's take 20 companies, 20 million, easy math. That's a roughly $1 million on average per company, right? Yeah. Okay. So... Long math exercise, but let's come back to that beginning question of Jason Lemkin's point about returning the fund and how, how much returns the VC needs to see. So here I am. I have my $1 million check. I've met a fantastic entrepreneur. His name is Rahul. He's just convinced me that he's got the next greatest podcasting startup. Now, so I will invest my $1 million ticket. And on average right now, I would say... It's pretty close to say that I'm likely going to get a $10 million post-money valuation for my $1 million if I'm investing in Silicon Valley, very early stage, right? Seed stage, pre-seed stage, which is the tickets that I normally write, okay? Yeah. So I'm investing $1 million at $10 million post. And so now, if we go back and we think, well, okay, Rahul only needs to exit at $30 million to return that $1 million back 3x. What's not to like? Doesn't sound too hard. And a lot of entrepreneurs actually think this way. And so here's why that's not how it works. Because obviously, as a VC, I have to live my life by the rule of the power law, which basically means that very few companies return almost all of the money. And then almost everyone else doesn't really return anything at all. And so what that means, if you go back and you think about me, and raising money from my LPs is VCs typically have an annual general meeting once a year where, you know, all the LPs get together and the fund manager talks about how great all their companies are. And so at least once a year, I'm going to have to step in front of all my LPs and basically justify my investment into Rahul and all the other companies I invested in. And how do I justify that? Well, I have to justify that by saying not, oh, I think all of these companies are going to return 3x each, but because everybody knows that's a lie. Most of them are going to fail completely, and then few of them will succeed spectacularly. I'm going to have to say, well, each and every time that I make an investment decision, I basically have to assume you're going to be the only one that makes it. Out of all of my 20 companies, maybe you will be the only one that returns everything. And so now my $1 million ticket instead of returning back $3 million, actually has to return 3x the fund, my $50 million fund. So that $1 million actually has to return $150 million. And this is the brutal math of VC, which means basically every single time I make an investment decision, I need to see credible line of sight that I can defend to my LPs and say, look, I think there's a good reason to believe this company could return $150 million. And if you remember, I invested in your company at 10 million post, 150x that, 1.5 billion. Yeah. And, and that's assuming no dilution, where obviously you're going to go after my seed ticket and probably raise more cash. That's going to dilute me such that my early 10% ownership, remember I invested 1 million at 10 post, which means I own 10%, is going to get diluted down to maybe something more like 5% if I if you raise B, C, D rounds. It's nowadays common for companies to raise E, F, G rounds, you know, yeah. before they IPO or get acquired. And so that's all likely going to dilute me, even if I reserved a little bit of cash in order to be able to defend my ownership. It's usually not enough, especially for a small fund like us, to completely avoid dilution. So I might end up actually owning only 5% at exit instead of the 10% I originally owned, which would put your valuation at $3 billion for me to make my 150 million. And so yeah. each and every time I invest, I have to think, 
will this company be worth $3 billion? If the answer is yes, I should probably write that check. Yeah. Okay. So I have so many questions. The first one, like who decided this 2 and 20? So where does that come from? Actually, variation in that. It's not like everyone has a 2 and 20 model. The very successful funds charge more. Benchmark or an index or these, these very successful VCs that have great track records will charge you know, more carry. They can charge 30% carry. They can charge more fee. Sometimes there are funds that charge lower carry, 15% carry, typically for like, let's say growth funds or select funds. They can have lower carry or lower fees. So there's a range there. But I think that as with any industry, over time, you just tend to gravitate to some kind of a kind of a middle ground that everyone feels fair. Yeah, it's the same sense. as everybody doing their deals on certain valuations and certain kinds of instruments like, I don't know, safe notes nowadays or whatever. Yeah, but it's yeah, constantly shifting and VCs are trying to push that up and LPs are trying to push that down. And Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about taking zero management fee? So you're like fully aligned to you earn only when the startups earn. Taking no management fee. Well, yeah, yeah, there are some funds where the GPs are like, look, we'll pay all the costs. I think it's generally not smart because it actually costs money to run a fund. Just the administrative and legal and back office and all those fees, you actually want excellent lawyers. You actually want an excellent back office team that knows what they're doing. And so it's sort of like probably one of the worst decisions you can make as a founder is to choose a cheap lawyer. (laughs) Because that lawyer, if it's a great lawyer, and I have personal experience from this many, many times over, will probably return their value again, many times over by being able to help you negotiate better than a bad lawyer. And in the worst case, you end up with a bad lawyer that makes some kind of mistakes that can really cost you horribly. So it's one of those things where I don't think the fees and smart LPs all know this, like the fees don't really matter. What matters is whether you're investing in a manager that is hyper motivated by carry instead of like, it's the problem with fees is especially you see this in outside of the US and in Europe, especially where there's a lot of VCs that have never had carry and are on God knows how many funds. All they do is they just try to increase their AUM. They stack funds like every three years, I'm going to raise a new fund. The funds are 10 year funds. They still run their fees. And I might have two, three, four, five, six funds stacked on top of each other, each generating that 2% fee, which makes me rich. I don't have to do anything. As long as I figure out how to raise another fund pretty soon and hopefully keep increasing the size of the fund so I can keep increasing the size of my fees. And so one of the reasons I like working in early stage and with smaller funds as myself as an LP, you know, we personally invest in other managers funds. I like managing a small fund because it feels more like a startup. It puts me closer to the reality of an early stage founder. I don't have a lot of cash. I need to think about what I do with it because I don't have too much of it. And it makes me very motivated by carry, right? Because that's how I'm going to, I pay myself minimum salary, right? Literally, like I pay our, our team more than I, I pay myself. And part of that idea is that, well, I have also more carry in the fund. So ultimately, just like a founder that may pay themselves a low salary, even though they may compensate their VPs well in the company, but they own a bigger chunk of the company. So they're counting on making a big, bigger return when the company is successful. Same thing here. Yeah. And also the management fee, right? You mentioned, I think, uh, briefly that a management fee goes down after a period of years. So when does that happen? Yeah, well, not always again. But on average, I think it's never a bad idea in business and life in general to consider what's fair, like for all parties. Because, and I learned this, I used to work at another fund when I was starting out in VC called True Ventures. And many people think true, well, oh, it means like the truth. But it doesn't because John Callahan, one of the founders of True, used to have a bike shop. So essentially, in English, when you're truing the wheel of a bike, you're making it so that it doesn't wobble, right? So it spins very cleanly without friction. And it's this idea of lowering the friction by making everybody into perfect alignment 
so that their motives and incentives are aligned as well as possible, all the way from the customers to the companies, to employees, to the company founders, to the VCs and board members that fund them, all the way up to the LPs that fund the VCs. If that whole stack is aligned, you have less friction, you end up with less problems, you know, fewer problems of, let's say, co-founders suing each other, VCs and founders not getting along, I mean, fighting over each other, things in the boardroom, like all this mess that consumes enormous amounts of time and energy and keeps the companies from being successful. It's the same thing with funds. So yeah, yeah that's one of the reasons why you want a fee structure where you may want to charge more fee early on, let's say maybe two and a half or three percent, because typically funds have more costs in the beginning. Just setting up a fund is probably going to cost you a few hundred thousand dollars in legal fees and other fees. But then later on, like seven or eight years later, the investing period is over. Essentially, you're just waiting for the portfolio of companies you've already invested in to become more valuable such that you can exit. And you're already focused on investing out of your other funds. So it makes sense to charge less fee from that fund. And so oftentimes you have a slope where the fees are initially higher than 2% and then they may decrease year by year after the investing period is over to something, I don't know, closer to 1.5%, maybe 1% even towards the tail end of the fund's life, but averaging out to maybe somewhere around 2% average. So there are two things, right? Two problems then. That means that a VCs has to raise a new fund to keep going, right? Because, yeah. Yeah, when, when the, absolutely. That's one thing. And the second thing is, like, why do, like, so when, when a VC f- raise a fund, uh, they, there's always investment period, which is like maybe two years, three years. Why is that? I mean, why, why do you force yourself to, like, yeah, invest in that short period? Yeah. And again, not everybody does it. You can see like, you know, it was just widely publicized how Sequoia is moving into this evergreen fund model where there's just one enormous fund. And eventually you're going to see the bigger firms follow suit, the KKRs and the big PE firms where Andreessen is probably going to IPO. We'll see if Sequoia will. So they're trying to essentially turn into these generalist investor I don't know how to how to call it, but almost like a conglomerate company that once a company gets very big, you can think about all these like Japanese conglomerates that are in many, many different industries doing multiple things at the same time. And I think something similar is happening to these big VC funds. So I'm just noting that there's other ways of doing this. There's evergreen funds, there's rolling funds, but the most common typical way is what we were just discussing, which is you have a 10-year fund somewhere between, I don't know, used to be four years was more common. Now it's shortened to maybe three, maybe even two years of investing period, which is the time during which the VC is expected to write all of those initial checks out of the fund, the first investments they make into new companies. And then after that period is over, let's say after three years, like in our case, then you still have seven years left to deploy your reserves as follow-on investments into the companies when they raise more capital to defend your ownership but you're no longer making new investments into completely new companies from that fund. And part of that is, I think that it, again, it allows a limited partner who is, who is an investor in the fund to have some visibility into what vintage companies they're getting. It allows them to decide. It's a way of punctuating when you're thinking about how you're investing your money. You can say, well, okay, I'm going to make, a, I don't know, $5 million investment into Yuri's Yes, VC. I know Yuri's going to deploy that over the next three years. So I'm going to get a sampling of what he picks as the best companies from this vintage, right? And then I'll see how he does. If it looks like he's a good picker and has good access, I'll invest in his next fund. But I want to make sure that I get to see how it works and if he's successful before I make my decision about it. And so it's a way of punctuating it and allowing me as an LP to see how a manager is doing, and then maybe keep investing in their new funds or switch to some other manager. Basically, all LPs have a portfolio of managers just like the VC has a portfolio of companies. And they're constantly shuffling around. They're saying, oh, that's a good manager. Let's let's keep investing in their funds. Whereas the managers that are having trouble and have maybe two, three unsuccessful funds, they might actually kick out from their portfolio and decide on someone else. Yeah. Okay. 
So this is the thing, no? If if you're like a first-time fund manager, your feedback loop is like very long. It's like you. It takes like five to six years before you even realize that maybe you're a good VC, right? It's not actually that long, though. It feels yeah. like it, but if you think about us, our fund is like I don't know, 2018 vintage, and we just stopped. We made our last investment from it in June, I think, this year. So 2018 to 2021, it's been like three years now. And you can tell that's going to be a good fund because it's already at such a high net multiplier that even if some of those companies that are valuable on paper are going to fail for whatever reason, think about, I don't know, most famously, maybe WeWork, right? Yeah, It was yeah. supposed to be hugely valuable and then suddenly it goes almost down to zero. Well, not quite zero, but relatively speaking, so, but probably not all of the great companies are going to completely crash. So one of them, at least, is probably going to exit at a very high valuation. So you can tell, okay, oh, it's working out. And so it enables us when, when we then go out and we raise our second fund, basically all of the existing LPs are like, oh, can I invest more? Because they're excited. They see that this is working out and they believe that we can probably replicate that in the next fund. Of course, that may change. Something may happen. Our access may no longer be as good. Maybe we just got lucky, but it doesn't need that much time. And I think part of that is that nowadays the cycles have just gotten so much shorter. The companies just have faster growth, actually, like revenue wise, not just in terms of raising more funding from bigger funds, but also real business so could you also briefly explain what how, how rolling front is different to evergreen and yeah well like in a rolling fund it can be like a quarterly for instance where essentially as an lp if you think about let's take the traditional example so here i am i don't know I, I, let's just say i'm gonna write a five million dollar ticket into yuri's fund two and now i have to wait 10 years presumably for that to return of course I think the average like fund returning exit, it's only like four and a half years or something. It's pretty short. So it's actually not 10 years for me to get money back if it's a successful manager. But I still have to wait a while and I kind of have to make a commitment all at once. In a rolling fund, the idea is I can make, I can adjust my commitment, let's say every quarter. And so I can say, well, I'm going to invest $250,000 each quarter. But if, and if things start going well, I'll increase my investment. So I'll start investing $500,000 every quarter. Or if it's not going well, I don't like the companies they're picking, I'll just decrease my investment down to something closer to zero. And so it allows me, and now what happens is, let's say I invest in your rolling fund in Q1, but then for whatever reason, I decide, oh, I'm going to pass and not invest at all in Q2. Then if it happens that you invest into some really great company in Q2, I actually won't get any of that upside because I wasn't investing in Q2. So it's almost like fundraising at shorter intervals and just getting a sampling of that quarter's companies, the quarters you actually invested in. Yeah. So even in traditional funds, uh, fund managers do this, right? With drawdowns, uh, maybe for a $10 million funds, they might have like a four four drawdowns, like over a period of two years, maybe. Yeah, I mean, nobody, yeah, it's it's very rare. I mean, it does happen, but one of the reasons you have, and I believe what you're referring to here are capital calls, cap calls, right? Cap calls, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, and <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Sometimes I have like, I don't know, like founders, for instance, who are investing in our fund and it's their first time investing in a VC fund. They're like, so when do I wire? And then they expect they have to, let's say they're investing a million dollars. I don't know, maybe they were just like, they sold their company and now they have a lot of money and they say, okay, great. I want to invest in your fund. And they expect they have to wire the whole $1 million in one go. And I'm like, no, 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 dude, that, that's not how it works. Typically as a VC, I will call capital in increments. So you commit, let's say $1 million, but that commitment is that you're gonna actually invest $1 million over the 10 year lifespan of the entire fund, not all at the very beginning. So I might call, let's say only 20% when I start. So that would be $200,000 of your 1 million. And then like, I think on average, we call capital maybe three, four times a year, maybe three times a year on average, but we call capital when we make investments. So. I only hold a little bit of cash 
the fund's bank account enough that when I meet you and I'm like, oh shit, this is a great founder. I got to invest right away. Let's sign the term sheet today and then I'll wire you the money like tomorrow. That way I ensure that I have some cash such that I can make my next investment. But then when that cash starts running too low, then I call capital from my LPs and I say, guys, guys, it's time for you to send another 10% of your commitment in because I'm going to, you know, I'm almost done investing the last bit. And so what this means is that it's good for the LPs because they don't have to send all of the money right away and then just wait. They can do other things with their money, you know, put it into some high interest business, some other thing where it's liquid, where they can still pull it out. I don't know, invest it in the stock market or whatever. Bitcoin, you tell me whatever you want to do with it, right? Because I'm not a professional manager of your cash in the sense that I would think about how to make that cash more productive. It just sits in our account. You know, it's generating some interest, but nowadays that doesn't really matter. My job is to invest into startups. So, and that, by the way, the other reason why it's important for GPs to, or why GPs tend to, the good GPs tend to be quite conservative about this is they never want to draw too much cash too early in capital costs because it lowers the IRR, the internal rate of return, right? Which is basically a formula calculated by combining the TVPI, the essentially the total return multiplier and the time it takes to return that cash. And so the more quickly, the more I can compress the time from when I call capital from you and I return capital to you, the higher my IRR is going to be, which makes me a better manager. Yeah. So you you mentioned about dilution, right? Is there any scenario where founders don't allow you to invest more so that you, you can prevent dilution? Any scenario where founders, what, allow me or don't allow me to invest? Don't allow me. Yeah. I mean, so it's very common for what happens is the world is very binary. There's hits and there's misses. And most things are misses. And before something is considered a hit, nobody's interested in it. I was just, I don't know, like I was on this other podcast two days ago and all they wanted to talk about was NFTs and crypto Dapper Labs, this hit company we were fortunate enough to invest in very early. And I was just laughing because I remember trying to get the same people interested in Dapper Labs when we initially invested in it and nobody wanted to talk about it. And so it's kind of a similar thing with dilution. It's where when we invest early stage, it's very normal for us to struggle to find other people who care about investing into the companies. But then... Once in a while, something like, let's say, like NFTs become like a thing and it becomes this huge thing overnight. And now it's a completely different scenario. It's like day and night. Suddenly everybody wants to invest. I can't tell you, even today I've gotten emails from people trying to offer cash for our shares in, I don't know, something like Dapper Labs because just random people are struggling. They just want to get in because they've heard that's the new thing. And so in a situation like that, a VC who doesn't have pro rata rights, when a company like you think about, I don't know, like Adapter Labs is now worth the last round, I think, posted at $7.6 billion. So it's a lot of gain, right? In like the three years since somebody like us invested, there's other investors in that too, like, I don't know, Andreessen or, or USV. These are, you know, there's a lot of great investors in that company or a few. And I'm sure they all have the same thing where now everybody's trying to say, hey, can we get in? Like, can you sell us a little bit of your stake? We'll offer you a premium on the last round's valuation. We just want in because they think it's still going to keep going up. And so VCs typically will try to negotiate pro rata rights, meaning when the next time that company raises, they have an ob- a right, but not an obligation to invest more so that we can defend our ownership and avoid diluting at least too much. Yeah. But then again, from a founder's perspective, that's it's kind of fraught because you don't want to give too many pro rata rights. Because you also want to make sure that you reserve enough allocation for a new high quality lead investor to get their minimum ownership amount. It might be, I don't know, 15%, 20% even that you have to have available. Otherwise, you're going to have to dilute yourself because now you've promised too many pro rata rights and all of your existing investors want to use them or even trying to do super pro rata, trying to invest more because they all think it's a great company. 
you end up in a, a lot of pressure because everybody's calling you. Everybody's trying to get their pro rata or more. And it's, a t it's another kind of problem. This is actually like a real problem that founders have. It's, there's just not enough allocation. So they have to go back and they have to negotiate down. And this often happens is that people who may even have pro rata rights actually have to say, okay, well, we'll, we'll dilute a little bit more just so that we can let in this new investor who we all want on board. Yeah. So it's these kind of negotiations that happen all the time. And the, and the VCs who don't have pro rata rights are usually the ones that end up with the short end of the stick and have no choice but to dilute. Yeah, I guess that was my question that uh, do all founders give you pro rata rights? <laughs> no, no, it's a negotiation. It doesn't always happen. I mean, we always ask for them. And typically for a fund like us, and this part of the reason why, again, like as a founder, if, like, you know, the savvy founders know all this because they've raised so many you know times and they've maybe done other successful companies and they've studied this, is you may actually want and I prefer this myself as a founder to early raise from an early stage fund, typically a small fund, because you know, even if they wanted to, they don't have a lot of money. Like they don't have a big fund, like our fund, only $50 million. So even technically, like for us to write, let's say $10 million into your company when it starts doing well in later rounds, it's probably going to be impossible. Yeah. Are right on the limit of what we could possibly do. And you think if you're going to end up raising hundreds of millions of dollars, that's very little. But if you take money from a huge fund early on, let's say, I don't know, you take money from an Andreessen or a, one of these enormous funds that have billions, they actually need to write tens of millions of dollars into you, maybe even more, maybe over a hundred million dollars for their model to work. Going back to what Jason was saying, like the bigger your fund, the more you're going to have to return. And so, and this all makes everybody expect them to do that. And, you know, this signaling thing where, and I, I have, you know, this, you know, I think it's, there was a time 10 years ago when I think it was sort of overdone as this danger that lurks and why you shouldn't take money from big VCs early on. But again, I have also been in companies where this has been an actual problem where people are like, well, okay, you took money from this big fund early on and they only invested, I don't know, hundred K but everybody's expecting them to lead your series A or your series B because that's their model. That's what they do. They have to put 20 million to work in your company. And then they don't do that for some reason, yeah. whatever it reason. And yeah. then it's, you know, everybody else is like, wait a second, yeah. you're out raising from us, even though yeah. you have this other big fund already as an investor, they must know something we don't because why aren't yeah. they leading it? And then yeah. the founder has to explain that. And so yeah. you just don't want to be in that situation. So I think from a founder's perspective, it makes sense to, as you stage, progress through each stage, to pick a lead investor at least, you know, or take the investors that are have a model that's designed for that stage and not try to take an investor whose model is actually for a later stage, but who wants to take an early bite just because for them that's cheap and they can easily do that because they have so much money they can just invest in hundreds of little companies if they wanted to and then just pick the ones that are doing well and then lead those rounds because you're creating the situation where it's not aligned <laughs> they have it's riskier for you than it is for them to do that so why don't you pick somebody who's going to work really hard like our my product to the savvy founders is access to quality follow on financing that's it yeah cuz yeah. i need to work at least as hard as they to help them find a very high quality lead to lead the next round, typically a series A, in my case, if I invested in the seed round, because I don't have the money to lead that round. I have to find a new investor that's probably gonna join the board. I have to find somebody who's compatible with us, i.e. that's going to not overcapitalize the company, not try to take too big of a bite out of it, diluting me and the founder. So my interests are very aligned with you, the founder, because I invested early and I my model is not to try to lead your next rounds. And it also helps the founder to have a broader base of investors because now they're bringing on this new fund that's powerful. I have my networks. I can help them by, by that. But it's good to have more than just me on your board or your cap table because now you have these other guys who bring in their networks. And then you bring in these third guys in your series C who bring in their networks. And basically you're, you're multiplying the people that are kind of working for you in the form of investors 
by helping you connect with customers, helping you hire new people, helping you raise your next round, preparing you for an IPO. Yeah. I've heard that uh, in this part of the world, uh, Sequoia is like that, uh, Sequoia India. So they might raise, uh, they might put in money in your seed round, but then if they don't lead your series A, then nobody wants to fund fund you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not everything is shades of gray, but yeah, it's like one of those things where, again, coming back to it, I just think you want to optimize for alignment. Basically, engage the people whose business model is aligned with you at that moment. <laughs> and when you fail to do that, you add risk because you're introducing uh, friction. Your wheel is no longer trued. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one other thing, valuation also matters, right? So in the example that you gave, you mentioned raising, uh, I mean, investing 10, 1 million at 10 million valuation, right? Uh, so the lower, the better for the VC, right? Yeah. Well, once again, I think it comes back to what's fair, right? Yeah. And so not all founders and not all companies and businesses are created equal. And so last year, we co-founded three companies. We sometimes invest pre-company, even pre-founder, where we invest in something and we form the company even before we know who the founder is. It's not, some people call this incubation. We don't call it that. And so oftentimes you look at like, I don't know, Jack Abrams at like Atomic or, you know, like a venture studio model where they will take a majority of the company early on because they're investing in it so early. They're basically creating the company. We typically take like 20% or even under, which is like some of our LPs are like, that's really stupid. Like you should be taking at least twice that, at least 40 or 50%. But then you like, I've been a founder. And so I still think like, no, 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 you don't want to be too greedy because you want to align everything so that the founder has enough ownership that it can work out for them. And I know that actually all of these companies that we did last year are right now doing really well. They've all, one of them is on track to create almost 40 million in revenue this year. And another one raised the big, high, very high valuation. So like, they're all doing great. If I own 20% and maybe I only invested 200K instead of a million because we created it, that's going to still return my fund. It's within my model and I shouldn't get too greedy because I want the founder again to be motivated and aligned to build it just like any of our other companies, right? And so I think, again, like there's limits within which I think a VC should be greedy. <laughs> you should be greedy to some degree, but you also have to be thinking about the long term, right? Where if you take too much, even when you can, that might actually just end up hurting everybody. Okay. So for your model, right, talking about the $3 billion exit, what is the minimum ownership that you need to have before dilution, the initial check? Minimum ownership. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? It's like a lot of LPs focus on that. And here's why I, and I grew up in a world of VC where minimum ownership was almost religion. I worked at a fund where that it still is very focused on that. And it, it makes a lot of sense when the exits are capped. So my first model that I made for our fund one, I think I literally like my spreadsheet had the highest exit at $5 billion. That was like ultra high, like no, nothing essentially would ever get even, it wasn't even thinkable that something would exit at more than that. Right. And now like we're only three years into this fund and some of our top performing companies are like well above that, well over $5 billion in value. Right. And so my model was junk. It was too conservative. And now if you live in a world where that is what you believe to be the truth, that no exit is going to be, let's say, above $5 billion, ownership really matters because you have to own a lot of these companies because they're going to be so small, right? Yeah. But if you're, I don't know, like another company, like I invested very early into Unity. And I still remember talking about this when when Unity was raising their pre-IPO round, I think it was like their Series D or E, which I think was priced at somewhere around maybe a billion, 1.2, 1.5 billion, something like that. And some of the other, the big investors saying, yeah, well, 
it'll probably go out, meaning IPO, at about four to five x that. So maybe again, thinking like it'll maybe it'll be worth five billion when when it IPOs. Unity today is worth I think forty billion dollars. Like check the market cap, not five but forty. That's eight yeah. times more. So yeah. even these top investors, including Sequoia, by the way, completely underestimated how valuable Unity became. And that is the market we live in today, which means that even if you own, like in my case, you know, it was a personal angel investment I had made. I owned a tiny, tiny fraction of Unity, but that check turned out to return enormous amounts of money to me, right? Yeah. Completely unexpectedly. I mean, I knew it was going to be good, right? But not that good. And so this means that we can now, it's more important for an early stage fund like us, that's a small fund, to be in the next unity, even if we own just a little bit of it, than it is to own a big chunk of something that's only going to exit at under $5 billion. And so why we're, that's why we're optimizing. We're not actually focused on ownership at all anymore. I took that out completely from like all our models. And we were like, initially we're like, we got to always own at least... 12.5% at entry because I'm, we know we're going to dilute and we can't defend our ownership. So we'll end up somewhere around 10% at exit. And you talk to the savvy LPs that have been around for decades and they all tell you, you got to own at least 10% at exit. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And it turns out in today's market, that's no longer true. It's because the yeah. exits have gotten so much bigger than they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about Clubhouse. I think they raised it. I mean, the series, series A or something was like it already had multi-billion dollar valuation. But when you compare to like maybe what Facebook is doing right now or something, there is a potential. <laughs> maybe that's why people are comfortable investing. At yeah, and we're LPs in uh, at least one fund that did the seed of Clubhouse. And so I've watched how that, how quickly that valuation has, our, our investment has appreciated, right? And so that's an example of how quickly it can bounce. Clubhouse hasn't ex exited yet, though. So yeah. it's sort of like, oh, well, maybe it's a WeWork, right? Maybe like nobody's using it anymore, and then it turns out to deflate. So there's still that risk. Like we're going to see those too. Right? I think that we're going to see more massive failures uh, just because it's the nature of the game. There's so many companies that have gotten so big so quickly that it would be it's statistically improbable to the extreme that all of them are going to actually return the DPI, meaning the actual cash on cash that they now seem like they're going to. It's just the nature of the game. We're going to have some kind of a fluctuation, a hiccup in the macro markets again, and suddenly people are going to freak out and the valuations are going to go down. It's just the nature of capitalism. Yeah. But like you mentioned, if you consider every single investment with an assumption that they all can get big, it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing is you have to have some kind of, in our case, like, you know, and I, I think I even put this on, on these slides that I, I, I put out is like the questions we ask are, how big is this going to get? And then can the founder take it all the way? That's really all you need to know. You don't really even need to, it's like another VC that once said, declining to invest in something because it's high valuation just is a lack of conviction. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a joke, right? Because obviously you don't want to overpay. And definitely there are companies out there that are raising at too high valuations. Like it's kind of like the fame, you know, Elon Musk famously saying Tesla is overvalued right now. Like what founder would ever say that, right? You have to have some, some real guts to be able to say that because you know it's probably going to affect your own pocketbook immediately. But that's again, like if you're being fair and truthful to what you really believe, then you're probably more likely to... In the long game, and this is like the nice part about VC is like, you know, we're now in like, I don't know, tens, dozens, like over a hundred companies, like all, all throughout your career. So it's kind of a long game where, you know, like, well, you win some, you lose some, but if you're trying to be as truthful and fair as you can, ultimately you're going to end up on the winning side. So, yeah. So talking about power law, right? You mentioned that maybe one startup would return the entire fund of the 20 investment that we talked about so if you think that, that way it, it makes sense for the the fund to like really focus their attention on that few things that has the high potential right yeah well <laughs> there's another vc who said well you know part of my job is to politely disengage from the founders that 
need my help, but I really can't afford to help because my time should be spent on the winners without pissing them off. <laughs> and I don't think it's quite like that. But, you know, there's some truth to that where essentially the companies that are failing in your portfolio are usually the ones that need your help the most and are the ones that you can help the least. <laughs> and so VCs always are struggling to strike a balance between this. Because if you think about me, my job, and this is different again for bigger funds, for whom they have a concentrated portfolio of, of fewer companies, they their whole model is based on investing in each round, defending their ownerships. And that's why they need to sit on the boards. They need to watch like a hawk to make sure the founder doesn't somehow do something that would cost them percentages of ownership and try to increase their ownership whenever they can if the company is doing well versus someone like me whose job is to try to pick the winning founders before anybody else and then help those founders attract the right later stage VC who will then watch over that company, make sure they don't overcapitalize or undercapitalize, who I think is a good person, an ethical being who is going to do all that work. And then my job is to go and find the next founder because my job is to invest in lots and lots of companies and then try to staff each of them with better later stage investors who sit on their boards. I don't have time to sit in all of the board meetings for the next six or seven years and do all of that work because my job is to acquire new deals, right? And so, but interestingly, what happens then is oftentimes the founders remember us well and they have a special relationship with us because we were like the first ones. <laughs> and so we will then end up kind of coming back surgically and helping them with certain issues they might have later down the line. It might be years later. And it's actually a very rewarding relationship. It doesn't happen with all the founders, but it means that you can really enormously help by solving, helping them solve some really important problem without having to spend a lot of time in meaningless board meetings <laughs> over the years. Yeah. yeah. I don't have firsthand experience of this, but then I've heard of Ron Conway. When a founder really needs help, he somehow makes sure that, yeah. He... Yeah, I think Ron was... And continues to be well known. And, you know, it was always the all caps email with three words, or I guess it's three and a half words, I'm on it, that he would yeah. respond when somebody needs to talk to Jeff Bezos or something. And yeah, I mean, I have whatever, like we have many co-investments with SV Angel, Ron Conway's fund, although now, you know, it's managed by other folks. And yeah, I, I don't think he's the only one. The uh, larger funds like Andreessen, obviously, then sort of try to turn this whole thing into like an enormous factory where you have this huge organization that's geared to help a Some founder, this service organization. And, yeah. but then again, there's this other angle to it, which is where I remember one LP telling me he was talking to another very successful early, early stage manager as an LP about to invest in this GP's fund. He asked, so guy's name is Alex. Alex, how do you help your founders? And Alex's response was, why would I ever invest in a founder that needs my help? So there's something also to this point that the successful founders oftentimes actually need very little help because they've already figured out how to make it work. Yeah, that's the complete opposite of probably the belief system in Andreessen Horowitz, right? So they have this whole system. And I was reading about this book called Creative Capital. Uh, I think it's by the founder of Venture Capital. He had a similar approach where he would want to support as much as possible to make sure that there's a chance of survival. Uh, I mean, I also kind of believe that because may maybe that help can really make a difference, right? Again, it's like you do what's needed and you probably can win by more, you know, more strategies than one, right? There's no uh, one right way. And so I think for any founder, having a partner, an early stage partner, for instance, who is, whose interests are very aligned with finding a great follow on lead investor, you just kind of can't go wrong with that. <laughs> Because even if you don't use them proactively, it's in their interest to, to basically work for you without even telling you by kind of marketing you to the right 
next stage investors and saying a good word about you when they go and they, you know, have their VC ski trips or coffees or whatever, Zoom calls. And so there's a French philosopher, Bruno Latour, who talks about the, he's got this uh, actor network theory. I'm a, you know, my background is in sociology. So I look at the world through these lens that most VCs know nothing about, which is like the theory of like social networks. And his concept is this, that the successful companies become obligatory points of passage. My friend Azim Azar once truncated to Obpop, which essentially means that you become the necessary, it's like Google. If you want to basically search for anything or find something on the web, Google is sort of like the Obpop. You kind of have to go through Google. It's just the easiest, quickest, best way. So everybody does. And or a Facebook or whatever. You know, some people say that's a monopoly. It's a different aspect, but it has some similarities. And so similarly here, what you want is to, as a successful VC, maybe become the obligatory point of passage through which it's just the easiest. It's like for if you are a founder who wants to accelerate your growth, this is the best way to do that. And I think you can watch an Andreessen trying everything they can to be that, right? And it's very, I think they're a very innovative firm and, you know, I admire that. But at the same time, we're now in this world which is so diverse that you can actually have many different, I mean, that's the nice part about VC. It's like John Callahan, the you know, co-founder of True Ventures says, it's like a national park. It's like an ecosystem where you have different species of companies and, and investors and they all coexist. And what you're trying to do is make the ecosystem a richer, more biodiverse place. And that's where it's, I think, important for there to be small firms like YesVC, not just one big sequoia. And it's important that you allow for founders to kind of create paths that are very different. Like the MailChimp founders never raised any VC at all. Yet it's one of the most successful companies was sold for over $10 billion. So, yeah. So, but there is this talk right now, right? That capital is ab- abundant and then you need to do more as a VC to like really get startups to invest, uh, like agree to take your funds. Then how how do VC stand out? I mean, if, if all they're doing is just giving you capital. Yeah. And I think there are founders who think that's all that matters. Like, you know, I just dealt with a founder who just, you know, shopped every term sheet, even though term sheets have no shops, basically just sought out the highest bidder for all their rounds, right? And doesn't care who the investors are. That's one strategy. Oftentimes, that's a very successful strategy, but typically for a short while. (laughs) And this is like where the long game comes into play, because you tend to also then end up working with people who don't really care about you and are kind of cutthroat sharks themselves and will gladly take the opportunity to screw you when it's their turn and they have the advantage. And that's what comes back to this point where it's like, well, it's easier to get rid of a co-founder than it is to get rid of your investor. You know, it's really hard to fire your investor. So it's probably the most consequential decision you make for the company is who you take to lead your seed round. Because that's the very first investor that's going to be with you forever (laughs) since, you know, the end of that company, basically. And I like to think that because of that being probably the most important decision a founder makes in terms of like where they, how they capitalize the companies, who they take that money from, it actually then makes sense to kind of brand yourself and behave in a way that demonstrates that you're a good person that has strong ethics and that has all of these combined, right? Access to high quality follow-on financing and a kind of belief about what's a moral compass like for a founder. Like imagine if Mark Zuckerberg had picked someone other than Peter Thiel early on as his key advisor and investor, would Facebook have become such an evil company? If Mark had worked with, I don't know, Katarina Fake, probably Facebook today would behave very differently right? And so I think that these are incredibly consequential decisions that then ripple, you know, there's even a great Masters of Scale podcast with uh, Reed Hoffman and Katarina Fake where they talk about this and how these basically 
there's this path dependence where you kind of it's almost impossible to reverse <laughs> your destiny once you you pick these people and it's the people who you pick that actually define it the most just by who they are and what they represent and what they believe in because everybody you hire all of the thousands of people who you may end up hiring to work in a big if your company gets really really big all of them kind of take their cue even if it's never said out loud, from what they think those people at the top believe to be the right things to do and what kind, how do you behave and all that. And that's why you end up with cultures that have, you know, or companies that have really bad cultures where you have harassment, you have people aren't happy. There's even things like fraud or criminal activities. And then we end up in these major issues with, you know, like a Theranos or, you know, even Uber went through this. Like how painful was that? Travis had to leave eventually for Uber to save itself. But I mean, I always felt the way the company grew, it was like the Travis's personality from what I could judge from far. Well, yes. And then also it's who you surround yourself with, because oftentimes, even if, if even the, though the founder is the pivotal person, they sometimes you can't overestimate the influence of those key investors because the founder is oftentimes relying on their beliefs about what's right a lot early on to make these key decisions. And so, yeah, it's probably true. And you end up with people like minds attract each other. So if you think a certain way and you're very cutthroat, you're probably more likely to invest with invest or end up with investors who think the same way. And yet, like this is a big justification for why, you know, like when we thought about like, should we be in VC at all? It's kind of a rotten business. And recently, a lot of these tech companies have been getting a lot of bad press for really good reason because they are evil. But then you're like, huh, think about crypto. Like it actually has the potential to really change the nature of these platform centric web internet ecosystem right now into something that's more distributed. And yet it's also a place rife with speculation, fraud, and kind of renegade people who are just doing really bad things, laundering money. Ah, like all these horrible things are happening in crypto. Quick gains, damaging the environment with Bitcoin mining. And then you're like, well, oh, we should stay away from that. But no, you actually want to engage with it because if you don't engage with it, you're missing out on the opportunity to somehow influence it in a positive way. Yeah. Now let's just talk about like from the founder's perspective, right? You mentioned about MailChimp. They've never raised external funding. They funded the entire business with uh, customer revenue and had a good exit. I mean, I realized this after raising VC funding that you probably, it's like doing a deal with the devil, raising money from VC because you talk about this perfect path where it grows, grows very fast. That never usually ever happens. <laughs> so w- what does it really take to, you know, I mean, what are the expectations? Well, I, I-, I gotta say, I think that, There's a new breed of founders that operate very differently from what many founders, I think, globally still believe is the right way. And the traditional belief is that you have a genius insight, you create, you work, you labor in your garage, typically, if you're in the United States, sometime from weeks, months, even years on some groundbreaking technology it's like Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs and you then introduce it to the market and boom apple is born whatever and it changes the world and if you start from that you the very last thing that usually happens is you you end up only talking to a customer after you've already developed the product and invested a lot of money into it and ha- raised money and blah 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 all that versus the way we like to invest and the kinds of founders we look for, which is our investing thesis is find a parade and get in front of it. That's our thesis. And what that means is we look for social movements, things where typically there's a group of people that's still quite small and who somehow feel overlooked, underappreciated, undervalued by the rest of society. Silicon Valley speak would be underserved, but I think that's a unidimensional truncation of what's actually happening. And so, for instance, we recently invested in a company called For Them, which is making products and services 
for non-binary people, so people who don't identify as male or female, which if you look on Reddit, you look on Instagram, you follow social media where teenagers are talking on Snap. It's a growing movement. Is it good or bad? We can discuss that, but it's a growing movement. And these people very much feel like the world isn't made for them. And you certainly, it's really hard to think of a brand that would address them. It doesn't really exist yet. And that's perfect for us because then we look for a person who we think would be the founder of that brand. We don't know what the product would be. We don't know. <laughs> what would they want? I don't know. I'm not non-binary, right? I'm a cis male. But I, I understand that dynamic well enough to seek out someone who could be that founder, right? And so we look for somebody who could get in front of that parade and figure out if there's something that would serve that movement and grow with them that they might embrace because they realize this is somebody who is trying to change the world to allow us to be express ourselves. And this always works. That's how Airbnb, Pinterest, Etsy, Kickstarter, all of these companies became so big. Etsy was the maker movement. It's literally people knitting. It doesn't seem like a business at all, but it's now worth $34 billion because you know early on, the fact that those people actually really needed a marketplace where they could buy and sell their stuff from each other allowed it to turn into something really big, right? And so Etsy was a fantastic investment from Katarina, and she was the chairman for a long time, and then eventually it IPO'd and, you know, became huge. So that's the sort of investing thesis where we have is before even knowing what product you build, can you find a group that has this kind of need that's not served yet well, and then try out different things. The For Them founder, they're, they're testing out different products, different services, trying to figure out what works for those people. And similarly, like we invested in a company called Para that's making a service for delivery drivers, which again, they're not quite employees. They're not quite entrepreneurs. They kind of fall in between. It's the crappiest job you can get. And yet there are millions of them. And they really are starting to realize that they have power, but they are completely underappreciated by the big platforms like Uber or DoorDash and society doesn't respect them, etc. And yet they actually have purchasing power. There are very few brands, again, that serve them. But if you created something, you might get millions of customers. And so like Para has grown like crazy because the drivers love it because, they're like, oh my God, there's a company that is about us for us. Like, what's not to like? We love it. We want you to succeed. And that's when you get word of mouth, you get virality, all of these free marketing things. You don't have to buy ads. Um, and you can see that's how Tesla grew. Like Tesla, right, never famously bought any ads at all just because people want Tesla to succeed so badly that they're willing to go out of their way to help it, even if they've never met Elon Musk. Yeah. I guess the only issue with such businesses is like estimating the total addressable market. It's usually like for non-binary people, the total addressable market. That's the first thing that came to my mind. What is that? It's not like, not even a thing, right? Exactly. And we, yeah. And we, talk, we talked about this $3 billion exit. <laughs> like, is that even possible? Yeah. Well, you know, it's like one VC said when Katarina was pitching Etsy, it's a bunch of chicks knitting. It's a bunch of women crocheting and knitting and making things like that's not a business. And yet now it's worth $34 billion because turns out there's a lot, a lot, a lot of people who are excited by handmade goods and crafts. You know, and similarly, at one point, you could maybe say electric cars, like <laughs> it's a really small market. Like, how, how could that ever work, right? And so that's what you want, right, is you want. And it was the same with NFTs, by the way. Like, you know, even in 2018, when we invested in the company, was the product was called CryptoKitties at the time. It's like digital cats? Or, okay. or we invested in, I don't know, like Kickstarter was the same thing. Or we invested in Running Tide, which was an oyster farm. And now it's one of the kind of breakout companies in the climate space, sequestering carbon by sinking kelp to the ocean floor and very valuable. So it, it just, this is the magic of early stage VC is that, and I, I think as a, if you train your mind as a sociologist to look at these movements and identify them early, you have a really good chance doing well as a VC because you want to pick things that most people still think are too small because they're still valued very low. But if you can see the rate of growth, of the movement of the market, then 
you just extrapolate four or five years ahead, and there might be tens of millions of people now who identify that way and who actually are enough to turn a company into a $40 billion business. Yeah. One last thing. Why Yes VC? Why the name Yes VC? Because when we were starting the fund, you, as a new GP, tend to be asked by your potential new LPs, can I please see your investment history? All of the deals you've done over your life so that I can get an idea of how good of an investor you are, even though you still haven't started this fund. And so I went back and I literally did this and it was very painful and it took me a long time and made a huge spreadsheet of all of our investments from like 2005 or something to present day, hundreds of companies, little checks here and there. And and as part of that, I also found some embarrassing emails, emails with, I don't know, Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, or some of these very, very, very successful companies that I had not invested in. And sometimes there were unanswered emails from founders many times saying, hey, will you check this out? And I realized like, wow, if I had said yes to all of them, I would be a billionaire today, like many times over. And so it taught me that you can't, you have to actually, whenever there's a a thing that has potential and you have a person that you think could do it, you just say yes. You have to say yes all day long if you want to succeed as an early stage VC. You have to say yes more times than you say no. And even when you say no, you have to turn that into a yes for the person because many times the first thing that they start isn't successful. It's only the second or the third thing. And you really need those founders to come back to you because they remember you as somebody who helped them from the very beginning, even if it was a failure. And so it was to me like, how do I learn to always say yes? And sometimes the yes means, I really don't think this is a good idea, Rahul. I love you, but I, here's why. Let me explain to you why I don't think it's a good idea and give you some ideas of what I think would improve it. That's actually somebody telling you that they're declining to invest, but showing that they care about you enough to explain and try to help. So to me, that is a form of yes. And we even have like an entire diagram of the ways that you can turn down a company and still be aligned with them. Because you're doing something you believe is true. Like, I actually think you shouldn't be doing this. If I don't think it's worth investing in, you probably shouldn't be doing it as a founder, right? And so I'm going to try my best, my honest, earnest best to make you succeed with the resources I have. And and so that means like always approaching every pitch from this yes angle. Like, how can I move you forward and help you succeed, right? So that's why it's called Yes VC. (laughs) Nice. And a lot of people think it's a really dumb name. And that's also, I think, part of the design because it's like sort of like your thing about like the non-binary people, like that's just stupid. And when enough people are divided by what you do, where you have people who are like, that's the best name ever. And then people who are like, I just think that's a really bad name. It's you're like, okay, now we're onto something because everybody responds. Nobody's like, uh, I don't care. <laughs> everybody has an opinion about it. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun. Let's do this again. Cool. If you like this podcast, please follow Understanding VC wherever you're listening to this and also share it with folks who might be interested. Thank you.